0: This is where we're at this morning, get to God's Word, Exodus chapter 20. I still can't believe that there's a lot of these people in this community, businesses Justin and others, that are like giving us money so we can tell kids about Jesus, and they have nothing to do with church or anything. It's really cool to see God doing that, and um, praise God, He's a a miracle worker. Exodus chapter 20, we're going to read this chapter here in just a minute, we're actually going to read the first 17 verses. And, and for just to give you a heads up, we're only going to get through seven verses this morning. <laughs> seven of the seventeen. It's not even the whole chapter. So when we began last week's study, I pointed out we're in chapter nineteen. When I started when we did last week's study, I pointed out how, that we had entered now into a section of scripture which accounts how God was claiming the children of Israel as His own by entering into. A covenant relationship with them, a covenant with them, and and there's very much similarity between a lot of the things that we read here and what God's already what God's done for us through His covenant that was that's rooted in the blood and the work of Jesus Christ. We too, God's made us His own through a covenant, and a covenant where He said, "I love you, and I'm going to make you mine." And I'm going to do that through the work of Jesus Christ. Now, the covenant that God made with his people, Israel, is a little bit different. But we're in this section where it's all being laid out. And back in chapter 19, God spoke to Moses while he was on top of Mount Sinai. And, you know, I counted this up. I think Mount Moses went up and down that mountain nine times during this two-chapter thing. And, and it may explain a little bit why Moses, in the last chapter, when God was all, go back down and tell them to, to not come. And he's all, I just came up, God. And now you want me to go back down and then come back up? And it was a little bit of humor in that. But, but nine different times. And this is the first time in chapter 19 where he's on the message, mountain and God gives him a message. He says, he says, go back down and tell my people, the children of Israel, and, and tell them these things. And, and, and God gave them an invitation. He invited the children of Israel, the Hebrew people, into this covenant relationship with him. And the awesome thing about that is that in doing so, God promised to make the children of Israel his special treasure. And, and, and he said that they would be to him, to him. This is how God would see them as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And, and, and we've been studying about the children of Israel up at this point, and they were anything but that, were they not? They are a bunch of knuckleheads. But we talked about that in the, the week in 1 Peter. Peter writes and he says that's what God sees us as a, as a special people, as a chosen generation, as a holy priesthood. And, you know, and if you looked up in the, yourself in the mirror today before you got up, you, sometimes you're like, what is, what is God, how does God see that in me? But he sees, us, he sees that in us, this, these special treasures that we are because of his great love for us, because of his great love for you. He sees you as special and chosen, and he desires to have this relationship with you. And so as we were, we were studying about that, we know that, that God said, for at least for the Hebrew people, he said, if you wish these have these things, if you wish to be my special treasure, if you want me to, to consider you and see you as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, he said, this is what you need to do. You need to obey my voice and keep my commands. That was the crux of it. And we read that when Moses brought this message to the children of Israel who were camped at the foot of of the mountain of Mount Sinai, it says that they all answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, God's desire was for his people to personally enter into this covenant relationship with him. Personally. Moses was the intercessor, and Moses had been the one that had been communing with God and delivering the messages throughout this time. They hadn't heard God or seen God or any of these things, but yet they were going forward by the evidence and the manifestation of God and how he had gone to deliver them. But God wanted to do something different. He wanted to call them into this covenant relationship personally. I love that because that's what God does for us today, intimately Personally, to where we hear his voice. And so, so what, what God did here is he had commanded Moses to go back down the mountain again after Moses had given his response to the people's response, and he commanded the people to prepare themselves for three days. And we talked about those preparations. And he said, in three days, then the, the whole of the people were to gather themselves together near the base of the mountain. And God says, as God said he would come down and that he would speak to Moses, but he would do so he would do so in the presence of the people so that they could hear for themselves what God was saying, what God was commanding, what God was speaking, how he was calling them. And so with that, we read here now in chapter 20 and continuing on in chapter 20, it says this. It says, and God spoke all of these words. These are the words that the people heard. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage and you shall have no other gods before me you shall make you shall not make for yourselves a carved image any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in that is in the water under that is in the water under the earth you shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I am the Lord your God I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and the explanation here. Six days you shall labor and you shall do all your work. But at the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And in he rested in the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land which the Lord is, is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And verse 17, you shall not cover your neighbors, covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge that your word is truth, and we acknowledge and recognize, God, that it is living and powerful and applicable to our lives today. And Lord, we also confess and 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 an understanding, Lord, that. Um, that we in our flesh, the carnal man, cannot discern the spiritual things that are of you. It takes your spirit, Holy Spirit, living inside of us to teach us and guide us. And so, God, I pray that Holy Spirit inside of us would guide us and teach us this morning, Lord, that you would fill me with the, with the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, to teach your word. That it would be your words and not mine. Pray God that you do a miraculous thing this morning, drawing us to you and convicting us of our sin, showing us a better way to live, and then God empowering us to be able to do so. Not by our strength, Lord, not by our might, but by your power. And Lord, so we we submit ourselves again to you today, for we love you and we trust you, and we want to be in your presence. We want to honor you and glorify you, Lord. So we ask these things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. So these first 17 verses, we see that God spoke. This was the beginning of, of God drawing his people into this relationship with him. And he spoke commands. Commands, which we now commonly refer to as the Ten Commandments and if you if and, and um and this was this was not and you need to understand this this was not the whole of the message though was it by no means was this these 10 commandments the whole of the message but it was the first part and it was a foundation for everything else that God was going to bring forth in this covenant that he was drawing them into it was the first part and like we talked about last week these commands were given because god was calling his people into a spiritual maturity to grow in their understanding and knowledge of who he is and and these commands were given in in relationship to that because this life of freedom that they had been delivered to alongside this privilege this awesome privilege of being being called god's people you know what it did it came with responsibilities the same is true for us. This life of freedom that God's called us to, being set free from our sin, set free from death, to be able to be guided and empowered and led by the Holy Spirit and this, and this, this awesome privilege of being called the children of God, it all comes with responsibilities. And, and for the Hebrew people and for us, obedience to these ten commands was the means by which God's people could fulfill their responsibility, first to honor and to glorify God, and the responsibility, which is the second fold, which we'll see here in this text, is to do good to others. However, these ten commands were much more than laws for governing the life of the nation of Israel. They are but one part of the covenant that God made with Israel when He took them to be His special people. And we began when we began to talk about this whole section of Scripture last week... When we began to talk about this covenant and the commands that, of God that, that came, I, I listed six, for you biblical reasons for why God gave the Hebrew people His law. And I said and I'll briefly recap that, because I said that the law revealed God's glory and His holiness. It also reveals the sinfulness of man. And James it says that when we stand before God's word, it reveals our sin like a mirror. It reaches in and exposes. In addition to, 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 to revealing um, the holiness of God and the, the sinfulness of men, um, uh, the law also set the nation of Israel apart as, as, as God's chosen people. They were different. Peculiar because they did what God said and it was different than anyone else in the world. And furthermore, we'll find out a little later on in regards to the covenant, it gave God's people a godly standard, really a set of conditions by which they might continue to inhabit the promised land. Furthermore, it was, it was ultimately the law was given to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed son. And, and in doing so, it was, the law was a shadow of the good things that were to come for the Hebrew people, for the rest of the world, as as the law pointed forward to the person and to the work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And I I mention these things again this week now because I need to, at this point, also point out that the law was never given as a way of salvation. Never. The law was never given as a way of salvation for a Jew or for a Gentile. And Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 confirms this by telling us this. Simply, it says this by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it makes it clear that salvation is not a reward for good works. Why? Because we'd all be up there boasting, ha, <laughs> look what I did to get here. It says it's a gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And even though the law reveals God's righteousness, because it does and it demands righteousness because it does it according to Galatians chapter 2 verse 21 cannot give righteousness but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 we're told that Jesus can make us righteous according uh, Jesus can make us righteous and according to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 22 specifically told as in relationship to even the communion that we remembered this morning of the work of Jesus Christ that it is his blood that cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness. So God's law for the Jew and for us today is the means by which God shows us our sins and strips away any ounce of self-righteousness that we may think we have before God. So that we ultimately, so that all of mankind, so that every single person who Christ came to die for would cry out for God's grace, for God's mercy, and for the gifts of the salvation that comes through His Son who said ultimately in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, that He came to fulfill the law. Came to fulfill it. But even though Jesus has fulfilled the law for us and set us free from the sacrificial and the ceremonial systems of the law, I'm here to tell you this morning that the moral content of the law still remains. And there's a lot of confusion within Christendom today and how that all works and comes together for a believer who's been set free from the law, not under the law. But the the moral content of the law still remains. And there's principles an application for our lives to guide us. And as we study through these Ten Commandments, we need to see that even though all of them um, that even though all of them deal with our responsibilities towards God, right? this is a responsibility kind of a thing, the first five guys deal with man's relationship to God. You may have heard that before. Specifically, directly, the first five deal with our relationship to God, this, this God word part. And while the other five, the last five, deal with man's relationship to one another. You and I. First to God and then to one another. And this is important because, listen, this is important because how we relate to others depends upon how we relate to God. If there's a problem in your marriage relationship, usually it's because there's a problem with your relationship to God. And and, and, and such is the case among us. Because if we love God and obey Him, you know what? We're going to also love our neighbor. If we obey God and love Him, then we're also going to love one another. And we're going to serve them. And this is, explains why Jesus would tell us in Matthew chapter 22. The very end of the chapter, I think it's verse 40. And, and a few verses before this, he says, he says, the whole law, all of the law, hangs on these two commands. You guys know it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I think that's important for us to, to, to set our minds in as we begin to study out these ten commands that God has given and as we begin to navigate through these Ten Commands, I want to first point out that the phrase, the Lord your God, right? It's there in the Scripture many times. matter of fact, it's repeated five different times. And it's important to acknowledge, it's important to recognize as we as we on the onslaught of, of, of going through this because it's significant in this way. First of all, in, 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 it, it, it identif- God's identifying Himself. Imagine the scene. We're told that the smoke comes down, the mountains consumed in fire, all these things. Moses is standing there. The people are at the bottom. They're trembling. They got barriers around for people to only go so far. They got archers and, and people waiting that if, if an animal or one of them happened to cross past this line, they were going to get shot with the arrows and killed. They couldn't come into the presence of God. And then, and then God begins to speak. It says, In the thunders, in the thundering. And they hear the voice of the Creator, the Almighty God. And He says this to them, the Lord your God. And He's identifying Himself. I am the Lord your God. Five different times. But in addition to identifying Himself, which is the the, the simple part of this equation, we see that in that, that, God also, by that phrase, five different times, is establishing His authority. I'm your God. The other night, we went out to, to dinner with some friends. And um, my wife, we're driving around. We're having a parking place. And we joke around like this all the time. And she's all, I got to clarify that it was a joke or I get in trouble. But she's all, park there. And I'm like, I'm, like, I'm not parking there. You're not the boss of me. <laughs> and then I said, I'm the boss of you. She says, you're not the boss of me. And I said, well, you need to read the Bible. <laughs> I was telling her who was in charge. I know that's a little bit of humor, and, 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 and I don't want to get crazy out of God's context of what that really means. But by God saying, I'm the Lord your God, you know what he was doing? He's saying, I'm the boss of you. So what are you saying? I'm your God. He was establishing his authority, and in doing so, he was declaring his right to govern them, his people the hebrews people both on a national scale right but also personally individually and in doing so god was reminding them of the authority behind these commands think about that with these five statements of the lord your god ultimately god was god was reminding them of the authority behind these commands because what 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 how good is a command without an authority behind it? It's like this. When you tell your, 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 one of your kids to go tell your other kids to do something, you say what? Tell them, I said so. Because if they go over there and say, you need to stop doing that, especially if it's one of the younger ones, they're going to get pushed down into the dirt and go, who are you to tell me? But if it is, Dad said stop doing that, there's some authority behind the command. And, and, and that's key, guys, because we live in a society today where we claim, and I don't mean just the church, but the United States of America, we claim to be a, a country of, of, of Christians. We're a Christian country. And yet we've completely adulterized and, and, and defiled these 10 commands because they're not in our schools. They're not in our courtrooms. We don't adhere to them. We completely deny them and the authority and the power behind them as a nation, as a country. And look at what's happened. I mean, that's a whole another Bible study. I'm not going to go there, but... But my point is, is, is when we understand authority behind them, we see the relevance, we see the importance of them and for our own personal lives, just not on a bigger scale, we have to understand that, that these words that God spoke to Moses in the presence of all the people, they weren't ten suggestions given by a friendly counselor. <laughs> well, I think you probably should honor the Lord your God. You probably shouldn't lie. They weren't suggestions. But yet, guy's really in our lives isn't that somehow sometimes how we kind of look at them? for me that 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 comes out to like yeah that that speed limit suggestion that says 65 miles an hour it's, it's not a suggestion right? it's it's a, it's it's establishing and defining the law the limit They were ten non-negotiable commands given and spoken by the Almighty God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. And He was commanding their obedience to them. And the first of these commands we see in verse 3 was this, to have no other gods before me. And when you look at what we that 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 command in, in context of everything that we've just spoken about, I don't know about you, but I go, yeah, no duh. You gotta start there. Have no other gods before me. And by this first command, guys, in a theological way, God was calling his people to recognize and acknowledge him as the one true and living God. And in doing so, This command protects the area of theology, meaning the person and the nature of God specifically. And and it's fundamental to all the other commands because right here in this one command, here's what it is. It's the who, the quote-unquote, the who of what we worship that is being emphasized here. Keep in mind, the Hebrew people had been living in Egypt with the Egyptians who worshipped many gods. For centuries, 400 years, we're told, from one generation down, they were, they were saturated in this Egyptian culture. And God had demonstrated that, that, that through their deliverance from Egypt, he had demonstrated Clearly and concisely to begin with, up to leading up to this point, his power over all of those false gods. And now God was calling them to forsake what they had left behind. Have you done that? Guys, have we done that? Have we forsaken what we've left behind? He was calling them to forsake what they had left behind and to worship Him and Him alone. And because God has freed us from the world, and He's freed us from sin, He's freed us from death, you know what? He commands us to the same thing, that we should leave behind and completely forsake all that we used to bow down and worship and to worship Him and Him alone alone. And so, in conjunction with this first command, God also said in verses four and five, You should not make for yourselves a carved image. You should not bow down to them or serve them. Why? He says, I'm a jealous God. I'm a jealous God. And by the second command of this, first we have the, the who of worship, the Lord your God, the God Almighty. The creator of the heavens and the earth. The one true and living God. That's who we worship. And you shall have no other gods before him. And the second command, as we see, for where God says, don't bow down to anything or serve anything else. The second command establishes the how of worship. Not just the who, but the how of worship. And, and this command is significant for us in light of two things. The first is the fact that although the Hebrew people had heard the voice of God here at the mountain with their own ears, they never saw him. They never saw him. Even though they heard him, they heard his voice, they never saw God. And guys, the Bible is clear. If you jump to the New Testament in John chapter 4, verse 24, it says that God is spirit, and he should be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And that ties directly what to reading and studying here because the fact of the matter is, any attempt, guys, to make an image of God, any attempt to make an image of God, the Almighty Creator from a created thing, would be at very best a disastrous and a feeble attempt to capture and illustrate the very person, nature, and power of God, the one and true living God, and therefore it would be an inaccurate or an untrue representation of God. But more importantly, the other reason this command is, is significant in regards to the how of worship, it, it goes back to the fact that the, people, the Hebrew people had been, like I said, saturated there in Egypt with the worship of all these various carved images of all these other false gods. And so with this command, God was forbidding, ultimately, we know the bigger picture, it was forbidding idolatry. It was Augustine who said this. He defined idolatry as this. One sentence, he said, Idolatry is the worship of anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshipped. Idolatry is the worship of anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshipped. And the worship... Of multiple gods back then, guys, and still today, is not only unbiblical, as we give our honor and our affections to something or someone other than God, if, you, if anybody takes a second to even stop and think about idolatry in the sense of giving worship and honor to anything other than God, you're going to conclude quickly that it's illogical, I love that about our faith. It's just not a blind faith. God goes, reason this out with me. And, and there's, a whole, there's a whole psalm devoted to how foolish it is to worship an idol made with wood that is into the furnace one day. You know, this whole, this whole thing, you guys, can, you guys know it. It's illogical. And it's illogical because when we consider that God is infinite, just just in the basis you can have this conversation with in order to be god or quote unquote a god there's only one god but in order to be god you must have certain characteristics that are undeniable for example if you're god you need to be infinite if you're god you need to be eternal If you're God, you need to be sovereign. If you're God, you need to be all-powerful. And when you consider these things, that God is infinite, eternal, sovereign, and all-powerful, it reasons to conclude that He therefore cannot and would not share His throne with another being that is also infinite, eternal, and sovereign. It's illogical. But not only is idolatry unbiblical and illogical, More importantly, it's immoral and demonic. And we don't like to think about it like that because you know what? Every man and every woman is an idolater in heart. We all are. We have a heart of idolatry that wants to worship the creation rather than the creator. And I'm here to tell you right now, Without a doubt, undeniably, the, the 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 in in regards to idolatry and the worship of a created thing, a created image, we struggle most with the worship of self. And worshiping self. And and you and when we see when you go okay. That is immoral and demonic. It puts it on a whole nother level. And whenever we see examples of, 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 of idolatry in the Bible, you know what? It always centers around two things. More than this, but always these two things. A perverted sexual act, which is a, is a, is a carnality, fleshly kind of thing, but also some kind of human sacrifice, usually an infant. You don't think that goes on today? Go look at how many babies are aborted in America on a daily basis. Sacrifice for idolatry. Now, idolatry is still present today. It's prevalent today. And the relevance of this command still applies as we are, we are enticed. You and I are enticed and we're tempted on a daily basis to give, to give our affections and to make ungodly sacrifices for all kinds of carved images. And this is, this is, for example, money. It doesn't have to be a thing. It can be recognition, right? It could be material possessions or or, or even other people. But we need to keep in mind that that God says we shall not serve or we shall not bow down to anything or anyone other than Him. Why? Why? He's a jealous God. And not in the same sense, not, not, not in the sense that He's like, uh, uh, he's, he's like envious of so, like other gods. I mean, that's, that's not what it is. He's not envious of other gods. There is no other God. Rather, when we look at this with, 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 with our minds and, and bring it into our hearts, we see that God is jealous for you. He's jealous for me. He's jealous for us. He's jealous for our affections. And the Bible says it over and over again. Just, just he's jealous in the same way that a spouse would be jealous for their mate and because of this scripture graphically equates, equates idolatry over and over and over again he likens it to, to spiritual um, adultery in light of this we should we should not only see that God's commands that the, the exclusive love of his people here by this command he does he commands or demands Our love exclusively. But that's not all that we should see. We should see this when he says, for I'm a jealous God. I'm jealous for you. I love you. What we need to see by this command is that he greatly desires. He desires us. He deserves it and he desires our love. God desires you. He desires us. Now in verse 7 we have this third command. And God said, he said, we shall not take his, his name in vain, for the Lord will not hold him who does so guiltless. And a lot of people think that this command means to not use the name of God as a curse word, and, and you shouldn't, but that's not the, the breaking of this specific command. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that's just, that's, a, that's an act of blasphemy, not that you want to do either one, Okay. It's an act of blasphemy to take the name of the Lord and to use it as a curse word. And so we can see by that that it's not directly tied to this command. Rather, this command has more to do with calling upon the name of God in an unworthy way, in an unworthy cause, or in in even um, uh, religious lip service. In other words, this command can be violated by, by, and we see this later on as we study it out further, and God will, 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 will expound and, and, and add some things here, but it's it, it, specifically in regards to making a vow or a promise. And swearing by the name of God to keep that vow or promise, and then not to do so. That falls under the, 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 the realm of this command. Also, this command can be violated by taking the name of God Uh, 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 through this declaration like we all have of saying, I've become His child. I'm a Christian. And I'm a follower of His ways. And yet we continue to live openly and blatantly and rebelliously in opposition to God's way. And in doing so, we tarnish the name of the Holy God. Now, are we going to sin? Yes, we are. That's different. But even in our sin, we can tarnish the name of God. So we need to be careful. We need to consider this. The point is, a name stands for a person's character. Does it not? Maybe more so 40 years ago. (laughs) But for me, it's true. In my life, in my family, in my home. And hopefully it's true in your life, in your family, in your home, that your name, your family name, your name means something. And a name stands, is supposed to stand for a person's character and a reputation, what you are and what you do. And when someone says a person has a bad name, we usually know that they're, 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 they're making a, a judgment or a criticism towards their character and giving a warning that they can't be trusted. That guy has a bad name. And because God is the greatest being in all the universe, His name is the greatest name. And even in God's word, it says that he esteems his name. God holds his name in, 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 in such a high value, he esteems it, he says, even above his word. Even above his word. And we know how important God's word is. But, but if God's name wasn't something that, that brought forth trust and integrity and value when you think about it, then what is his word? The same thing too with me or you. If, 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 my, if, if my character is not reflective of a, of a trustworthy and honest person, my name, then what good is my word? And so God esteems his name higher than his word because his word is validated by the fact that God is honorable and trustworthy and reliable and faithful and good and kind. It's His name. It's His name. And it's the greatest name. And it must be honored, guys, by the words that we speak. And and ultimately by obeying His voice, by obeying His commands. And when we do that, we honor God's name. We reflect who God is to other people, and they get an accurate depiction of the God that we know, the God of the Bible. But when we don't, His name's tarnished. And we've broken these commands. Another one of his commands, and we're going to end with this this morning, another one of his commands is to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it, to keep it holy. It wasn't too long ago that I did a topical study on the Sabbath, so I'm not on the Sabbath day, Sabbath day rest. and I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time going into all the details, it's going to be a very touchy subject, but I do want to remind us that the word Sabbath simply means rest. The Hebrew word Sabbath means rest, rest. And the Sabbath tradition, guys, it was already a part of of Israel's life before God even commanded it at this time. But now God made it a part of not only Israel's law, but a part of their covenantal relationship with Him. Did you know that's a huge aspect of our covenantal relationship with Jesus Christ? Because through our covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, we enter into His Rest. His rest. And the important thing for us to understand is that God commanded here a day of rest in order that it might be, it says, kept holy. It, it, and, and, and that gets so, so... Uh, I, don't, I don't have time to get started. Anyway. In other words, it was a day... It was a, let me reiterate that. A day of rest, why in order to keep it holy. To keep it holy. And a lot of people, I'm going to say this, a lot of people will think that they're honoring God with a day of rest, and there's nothing holy about it. Nothing. Believers. Guys, we do this. Because we make that day of rest all about us, rather than all about God. In other words, it was a day that was set apart from all the others to take a break from the everyday labors of life in order to have intentional worship and fellowship with God. A day of rest in order to keep it holy. John Calvin put it like this. I'm not a Calvinist. But I like John Calvin. And John Calvin put it like this and he said, God did not command men simply to keep holiday every seventh day. As if he delighted in their inactivity but rather that they being released from all other business might the more readily apply their minds and their hearts to the Creator of the world. I love that. And in light of this, we should also consider how this applies to our lives today since there are many who view this command as exclusively and wholly and only applying to the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people. Simply because it's the fourth of the Ten Commandments, and because we as Christians, as we already talked about it, are no longer under the law, as it says in Galatians chapter three, verse 10, and in Romans chapter three, verse 19. And clearly there is, or there are, different views on how or even if the, ca- if, if the keeping of the Sabbath day applies to our lives today, within Christendom. And basically, there are three main viewpoints. There's different variations of this, but these are the three umbrellas. Today, there are some who say that Christians should strictly observe the Sabbath, which is a Saturday, as ordained by God at creation and in the Mosaic Law. The second point of view transfers the Sabbath day observance to Sunday, the Lord's Day, making it a Christian Sabbath. And lastly, there are some who say that the Sabbath was a part of the law exclusively from Israel, like I said. And since we're not under the law, it's not applicable to the church at all or to a Christian's life. And sadly, I think this is probably the view of most evangelicals in our day today. However, from what I read in Scripture, I think it's safe to say that the Sabbath, the Sabbath, as it relates to a specific day, meaning Saturday or Sunday, is not where it lies for a Christian. And I think the words of Jesus where it said the Sabbath wasn't made for man, man made for the Sabbath, right? But but this does not mean that we're we're free to cast off the Sabbath-day principles, since there are principles in the Sabbath. That were even before the law, that came out into the law, or or came with the law, both as established at creation, was what I mean, and under the Mosaic law, principles which directly apply to the Christian observance or celebration of what we commonly refer to as the Lord's Day. There's principles there that apply to our lives, benefits, blessings. And even though we're not under the law, there is much in the law which applies beneficially to us, even beyond the moral aspect of it. Is there not? I mean, it's reasonable to conclude. And the fact of the matter is, is the prevailing view which sees Sunday as a day to go to church and then to do whatever you please... It's, it's robbing us, God's people, of the blessing that God intended for us as brought forth in this, in this text here, not only at creation but through the Mosaic Law by setting a day, one day out of the week apart, one day in seven to cease from our work and to focus on our Creator, our Redeemer, our Father, our Friend, our Savior who loves us. Justin, if you want to come up, we're going to end with this. So the principle of the Sabbath stemming from both creation and the law has application for our lives today. And, and, and we should look at, we should, we should, we each of us should look at how this, this, this can be best applied and observed. And you're probably going, well, he's not really saying how that applies and what I should do. I'm not going to. <laughs> the Bible doesn't define it. It just gives us a road to walk down. And that's going to look different for you as a follower of Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit living inside you. But these are the principles and they need to be applied and how that manifests out in your life is between you and God. But it applies. And we should all, like I said, look to see how this best can be applied and observed by us. And here's another principle that we need to keep in mind. By us who have been saved by grace through faith. And I intentionally say it like this because we must see that if we look to observe the Sabbath in any kind of legalistic way, we then are no different than the Pharisees in Jesus' day who turned the Sabbath day into a day of burden, burden and rather into a day of blessing by adding, as what we know, 39 additional forbidden acts to the one single command of God. And speaking about this very thing, guys, Martin Luther, who I like also, wrote and once said this. (laughs) if anywhere the day is made holy for the mere day's sake, okay. if anywhere the day is made holy for the mere day's sake, if anyone sets up its observance on a Jewish foundation, he says, then I order you work on it, write on it, dance on it, feast on it. To do anything that shall remove this encroachment on your Christian liberty. Martin Luther was a rebel. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, so rather than seeing the keeping of the Sabbath day as an act of obedience to the law, we need to view the Sabbath day as a gift from God. That's the principle. Not as a duty to be fulfilled. And guys, as we stop here and we even look back on the first of these four commands... Guys, that's the case with everything that the Lord asks us to do. These are gifts. These are gifts from God. And He loves us and He desires that it goes well with us. Father, thank You, Lord, for Your Word, for this covenant relationship that You've called us into. God, that we're saved by grace through faith that You've forgiven us. Lord, that You love us pray, God, that we would take these things and just, and just blanket the whole world with it, everybody we come in contact with, that they would see the joy and the hope and the peace and the life that we've received from you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.